The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. Later in the show, we'll talk with Katherine A. Sanderson, Professor of Happiness at Amherst College. We'll also talk with Hampshire College astronomer Salem Hamid about recent congre- congressional hearing on aliens. But first, Take the Mic is a course at Springfield Technical College, Community College, as part of College for Kids Youth summer program that focuses on building self-esteem, empowerment, and public speaking skills for girls of color in Western Mass. The program was started by Ayanna Crawford, who is chief of staff for the the state rep, and Springfield mayoral candidate Orlando Ramos. Ayanna joins us in the studio, as does recent graduate of the program, Justine Crespo. That's me. And NEPM News Department, Nirvani Williams, who last week published a story on Take the Mic. That's so wonderful. It's like a a nice breath of fresh air to not have to do it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And you did it so well. Congratulations on the intro of the show. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. And we're here with... Everyone that Justine just introduced. So we've got Nirvani Williams from the NEPM Newsroom. We have Ayanna Crawford, who leads the Take the Mic program at at Stick, And Justine, who just finished the course. Thank you so much for joining us all in studio. I just repeated everything she just said. <laughs> Thank you. For oh, man. <laughs> I just reporter-splained that. Oh, uh, well, you know. It, it wasn't intentional. I was just really excited. Well, speaking of reporters, Nirvani Williams, who is from the NEPM News Department, who joins us, tell us about how you heard about this story and what made you want to do a piece about it for uh, the NEPM News Department last week? Oh, man. I heard about this uh, program through Liz Roman, who is our managing editor at the station, and I thought it was a really wonderful program, just highlighting young women of color and helping them have public speaking skills. So I joined, I like went to the program just earlier, earlier on in the week, um, and I saw Justine just getting her feet wet, just starting to talk <laughs> and present all of these wonderful ideas and things that, you know, you were, you know, helping the kids get started with. Um, and then I went to the graduation um, and I saw really how these kids developed and really gained the confidence to say what they wanted to say and present their ideas, you know. So it was really it was wonderful. There's a lot of programs as part of that that summer course of study for for younger people. What made you want to take this particular class, Justine? Um, my mom showed me it online and she was like, I think you should do this. And so I was just like, Oh, that sounds fun. So and also I wanna work on my public speaking because um it's not fully there. I still get nervous, I get anxiety, so um, but I think I learned a lot. It still helps me to this day. Are you, do you live in Springfield? Mm-hmm. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 16. And how long was the program? It was about a week, yeah. Uh-huh. So let's talk to the director of the, the creator of the program, Ayanna Crawford, who's in the studio as well. Thank you so much for coming in and bringing Justine with you. Oh, well, thank you so much for having us. We're very, very excited to be here. 
And um, yeah. <laughs> Tell us where you came up with the idea for this program. Absolutely. So I'm a mother and a grandmother. And about 10 years ago, uh, my daughter was a third grader who came home uh, really anxious and really sort of upset that she was not confident enough to do her presentation orally. And so as a mom, of course, and also as a former teacher, that I felt as though I needed to do something. And so we did like a little exercise on, you know, standing in front, you know, having her paper in front of her, doing, feeling sort of, um, just doing different types of exercises. And so I said to myself, if my daughter's feeling like this, what other girls in our community are feeling like this? And so from there, I launched a one-day um, public speaking class of over 50 girls that just registered from I don't know where. <laughs> and, and they were ready, and I was ready. And we did this one-day workshop with girls on public speaking. We had a multitude of things involved in it. We had professional women that came. We did some icebreakers. We talked about dressing well. We talked about positioning, posture, just all those different things that we think about when we think about public speaking. And it went over with a hit. And so family asked me to potentially think about um, doing a maybe a summer enrichment program or something. And so it took me two years to get the gumption, think about that, the gumption <laughs> and the nerve to say I could do this program on a larger scale for, um, for many other children and girls in particular. And speaking of that, like, so it started as one day and now it's like a week. Um, possibly some change. But so what are some of the ways that the program has grown since your original inception of it? That's a great question. I think that we just, we made it very clear that public speaking is a soft skill. And we know that we don't necessarily teach this at the elementary, middle school, or high school. We know that. And so how can we make it fun and educational at the same time? And this is a skill that we're going to need in the future, right? And so I said, you know what, let me think about the things that I do as a teacher that I can infuse and think about how public speaking has so many different elements of it um, and be able to incorporate those things and to build upon it and create not only a week-long program, but we created a school-age program, we created an enrichment program, and we keep our signature program as a one-day workshop for girls. And so it just really made sense for me uh, because we don't teach public speaking in schools, particularly. Of course, at the college level we do, but not in the early um, secondary uh, classes. We don't do that. And so it just made sense. That's Ayanna Crawford, who's the founder of Take the Mic Springfield, which just graduated at Springfield Technical Community College, Nirvani Williams from the NEPM News Department did an incredible story about it. Let's go back to Justine for a second here, who's one of the graduates uh, from this class. What's something, you know, we asked you to do something out of the ordinary to introduce the show. I'm so glad you said yes, and I'm so glad that you, you did it incredibly well. What's something that you learned in this class that you think you'll keep in mind going forward when you're in a public speaking situation? Definitely projecting my voice because <laughs> I... I thought I was talking so loudly and so clearly, and I just, I thought I was like with such confidence, so I was like, it's not that bad. And then 
they were like, you kind of, I can't really hear you that much. And I was just like, really? <laughs> and then I just didn't believe it. And then I heard myself like on video and I was just like, wow. Okay. Yeah, definitely need to know that nobody likes to hear themselves yeah. <laughs> or see themselves on video, at least at first. It is certainly an acquired skill. So oh, you're not right, alone right, in that. Right. Yeah, no, it's not fun. <laughs> I was like, wow, they really can't hear me. <laughs> and so then what do you do to remind yourself to to speak up? Um, I guess like when I inhale before, like taking that um, first breath or Right before I'm about to speak, I bring my voice with me. So I'm like, hello, or you know what I mean? So, yeah, I try to carry my voice out, I guess. Nirvani Williams from NEPM's news department. I'm interested <laughs> in seeing your perspective as somebody who does do some public speaking going into these class. And as someone who took public speaking in <laughs> in high school, like, are you seeing bits of yourself in these classes when you went to go and observe? Oh. And like, were there things that you saw there that connected to your experience learning public speaking as well? Oh, man, definitely. I, just everything you were just saying, Justine, like about being nervous and having anxiety, definitely being on the radio, I feel like, and hearing your own voice is such a weird experience. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of dissonant. Like, you're not, I'm not exactly thinking that people are listening to me or can hear me because um, you're in a studio and you're kind of locked in um, to what you're saying and doing. But yeah, no, when I when I went into the classroom and I saw you speaking and I saw how sometimes, ner you know, how nervous the kids are getting and kind of getting quiet at points or, you know, projecting in and out. And then the, a lot of the ums, um, 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 and that, you know, and I just feel like you're just trying to think about what the next thing you're trying to say. Oh, man, I saw so much of myself in you guys um, when I was first starting out. Um, but then by the end of the week, once I saw how much you guys developed in your confidence and feeling okay to share your perspectives on the world, you know, in your voice, the community service project that you guys did. So they, um, at the end, when they graduated, um, they, uh, Ayana was like, you guys should uh present a community service project and see how, you know, you can influence your community with all of the things that you learned in the program. Um, and the kids were presenting, you know, their own ideas of how they could, you know, make the city of Springfield better. Um, and I, Justine, you should totally share your project <laughs> that you did. I, I was so impressed because I was also thinking about a lot of the things that I, um, how, ways that I want to improve my community. And I feel like reporting was something that uh, you know, I kind of do to, you know, influence my community. That's NEPM's Nirvani Williams. What is Justine Crespo, who is the recent graduate of Take the Mic, uh, wanting to do to improve the community of Springfield? Um, I was, my project was on beautification and more like cleaning up the area, fixing up new things, because or fixing up old things, making them new, because I feel like the we're put in an environment where it just negatively nev negatively affects everyone and like all we see is like liquor stores baking lots like spray painting like vandalism trash on the like everywhere no matter where you go and i when i in the future i hope to like grow up in a where i could have children raise kids or 
like live my life without worrying uh, if I'm gonna be able to ha- drink clean water or stuff like that, or if there's gonna be like violence around me. I feel like people, they, they always try to invest in getting out of this, like out of communities that are not good for them instead of trying to invest in it, which I'm tr- I would want to do if I can. That's nice. such a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I believe the children are our future. Oh, no. <laughs> Teach them well and let them lead the way. Not again. Right. I know. Uh, well, <laughs> ahead, more with the folks of Take the Mic Springfield, director Ayanna Crawford, as well as recent graduate Justine Crespo, and NEPM News' own Nirvani Williams. You're listening to the Fab 413 <laughs> on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. What are you laughing? Because I put Janet Jackson on there? I'm laughing because you put this particular Janet Jackson Come on. In. This is all about her taking ownership of her voice. Yeah. I thought that. Yeah, yes. That's why I wanted no, to put that. No, it, it, I mean, yes. And speaking of that, Ayanna Crawford at Springfield Technical Community College has been helping young women, specifically women of color, take back their voice, learn their voice, and get to hear their voice with Take the Mic Springfield and joining us is one of the recent graduates of that program, Justine Crespo, and Nirvani Williams from the NEPM News Department, who just did a great story about this last week. Ayana, I want to know, I think there's probably a lot of people that are listening right now, regardless of how old they are, you know, what their background is. Public speaking is like one of the greatest fears of so many people. What's a, a good first step in learning how to hear your own voice? That's a great question, Monty. I think when we think about um, words and how words sort of move you, um, I think about poetry. And poetry for me is such a movement and it's rhythm and it's, it's song and it's dance. And so to hear your voice is to hear your voice through poetry. And so we always use it as a first exercise with our girls, mm. that you take poetry and you want to dance with it, you want to bring it to life. And so take those words and bring them to life off that paper. I think that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And a really good skill because not all poets can read their work. So if you can read like and and get again like that cadence, those stanzas and like how Mm -hmm. the breath really works on the page, like that's a really good skill to have and incorporate everywhere else. That's all. And Ayana, <laughs> you mentioned that you were a teacher before, you know, starting this program. Yes. Um, how hard was it for you to find your own voice? Cause I think there's a moment in almost everybody's life where they think, oh, am I, should I go out on this podium? Should I get Beyond in front of this? Beyond the two years that you were trying to, like, <laughs> validate this very important thing. <laughs> Thank you so much for that question. Um, it's always, I've, been, I've had a soft sort of behind the scenes voice that I've used in the classroom, in my four walls, right? Trying to create um, uh, value and space for others. And so with that, I was able to see and hone in on my own voice. And I believe that's what made me take the risk of helping girls, especially girls of color, to now take your risks because I've done it too. And not just a risk of public speaking, but really social 
justice issues that are so poignant, right? And like she mentioned about clean water, you know, social issues that, that resonate with you. And so how do you speak up? How do you take a risk and talk about things that you are passionate about? And so I think for me, um, it became a passion. And I think that was really what drove me to say, you know what, if I'm not elevating my voice in the spaces that I'm in, then who is going to do it? I'm interested to hear some of the feedback that you might have gotten from other graduates in previous incarnations of this. Did they come back to you and say, oh, Ayana, guess what? I went and did X, Y, Z with some of the skills that I learned from your program. That, yeah, that's a great question again. Um, yes, we've heard from uh, college graduates that have gone through our program. Um, the college interview, sometimes students have to do those interviews, right? right. Yeah. And so they're always sort of wondering, okay, what should I say? How should I say it? And we actually had a portion of one of my earlier programs where we talked about college interviews, and they were u- able to use that. Um, we've had other s- girls that have talked about you know, just being in their peer groups, you know, being able to conversate and talk and, and have those conversation starters because we also help them sort of in their peer groups, you know, sometimes you have to take a risk to start to talk to new people, you know, and so we gave them some tools on how to do that. And so they were, they were very happy to know that they use some of those in building relationships, keeping relationships and taking a risk in conversations with their peers. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that actually keys into a question that I had for Justine about this and, and implementing it. But I think now I want to ask, like, how would you, would you suggest this class to others in your peer group, to people that you know? And how do you think it would help them? Um, yeah, I actually, absolutely I would. Because, I mean... Like, I have so many friends that have anxiety or, and I remember, like, they would just, like, get off stage, like, at competition. One of my friends kind of just ran off stage. They were supposed to do a presentation, but they just left. And then I have a lot of my friends, uh, they can't even uh, do a presentation with, in front of my class. And honest, and there's not a lot of kids my age in the program. So I would like to see a lot more girls that are like my age or in high school doing the program because I think we could all like learn a lot from it. And honestly, just going off of what Justine said, when I was there, it was the camaraderie among all of you, like everyone in the group was so incredible. Like just so many young women of color coming together talking about their anxieties and voicing that and talking about all of the things that they fear when they go up and speak in public. Um, but also a lot of the exercises that Ayana was talking to you guys about doing were great. Like, I remember for the business pitch, there was like a business pitch exercise where um, you guys had to think of a business that you wanted to start and how it would influence your community um, and improve it. And um there were so many girls talking about hair care products mm-hmm. and how there aren't good hair care products, you know, <laughs> for, for like women with big curly hair and that how it's a really big problem. And everyone was really talking about it. And I, I just thought that was such a great way for people, for, you know, everyone to know that they're not alone and that they're together and they can think about 
different ways to make things better for themselves, you know, as, if you work in a, in a team, in a group. I'm going to ask an open question, and whoever wants to answer it can answer it. But do you see in this class, um, having observed, taught, and participated in it, how finding your own voice allows you to also understand the space for other people's voices as well? Ayana, the director of the program, take the mic at Springfield Technical Community College. Taking the mic. Literally taking the mic. I, I really do, because, you know, we feed off of each other, right? And so when someone feels empowered to speak their truth, then others also then become empowered, right, to speak their truth. And so it becomes a trickle-down effect. And so I think in spaces and places like this, with women of color and all women, for that matter, um, to be able to really feel as though someone's got your back and that we support you and we're here for you. And so absolutely, the energy in that space becomes palpable because you see others that look like you, that perhaps even understand you. And so now you want to feel that same energy and be able to express those same thoughts or your own thoughts. Ayanna Crawford, who started this program, Take the Mic, tell me if people are listening to this and they know somebody who they would like to encourage to learn how to be a better public speaker, when's the next round of these classes? When's the single day class that you're talking about? When's the next opportunity? Absolutely. So we are going to be going into the Springfield Public Schools this year, and we have been for several years. And we will be looking to partner with some schools in Springfield. Uh, the summer enrichment program at STIC will be happening every summer in July. Uh, we do offer one-day workshops or one-day seminars or one-day uh, classes for public speaking. You can reach out to me directly at 413-886-9089 for those particular um, type of courses. And, of course, we're online. Uh, take the mic. We have a Facebook page. And so if you're interested um, in learning for yourself, we also do one-on-ones because I know how um, nervous uh, because I know I was at one point uh, being in front of a group of others. And so we do do one-on-ones as well. And we've had um, locally, we've had some local politicians take my class too oh. as well. Oh, should we out them or is mean, that within the privilege? <laughs> well, I will say this. One of them used to be a school committee member that is now a mayor. Oh, wow. So. That's amazing. That's so great. And it goes to show you that, yes. you know, that everybody has to start somewhere when it comes to the confidence of getting in front of a microphone and getting in front of an audience or getting in front of a, a peer group even. Mm -hmm. So it's really remarkable what you're doing uh, for these young women. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And this is I think this is going to be my life calling mm -hmm. for the next uh, several years. Um, I'm ready to. Uh, branch out um, and look at other cities and towns that are interested in having take the mic at their school, at their um, uh, community colleges, or what have you. I'm ready to take us on the road. <laughs> That's Ayanna Crawford, the creator of Take the Mic Springfield. Justine Crespo, who has uh, just graduated. At a certain point, I'm going to point at you, and then you just say you're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM, but wait, because I want to thank Ayanna I also want to thank Nirvani Williams from the NEPM News Department for covering this story and bringing them to our attention. So that we could fangirl over them. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. We Coming up, it. we'll get into the science of happiness with Amherst professor Katherine Sanderson, who has literally written a book on the feeling. But 
Congress has been taking a look at aliens. Coming up, we'll talk with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid. You're listening to the fabulous 413. Woo! <laughs> 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 to boldly go where no man has gone before. Time for some more kitchen table astronomy at the Amherst kitchen table of Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe. Quick follow-up to our conversation last week with Smith astronomer James Lowenthal about the Dark Skies Initiative from two different perspectives. One was very excited about the Dark Skies Initiative and wanted us to know that this weekend, August 11th through 13th, that there are the Aruna Hill Days in Cummington. You can go and camp on this hill for 10 bucks in Cummington. And if the weather is right for it, it's the Perseid meteor shower this weekend, uh, the summer look at the Milky Way, Saturn and Jupiter rising around midnight. So people encouraging to take advantage of the dark skies in our area in Cummington. And not that it's an opposite perspective, but an additional perspective. A, a listener named E. Vogel reached out because tonight Amherst Town Council is going to weigh in on a new potential lighting ordinance, one of which would try to maintain dark skies at night. But uh, E. Vogel saying it could potentially be dangerous for cyclists and pedestrians if they take this ordinance too far. So you can, there's another side of the story. You can learn more about it uh, at the Amherst Town Council tonight. And speaking of the other side of the story, we're talking with Mr. Universe about our favorite topic, aliens, which was the subject of a hearing in front of the U.S. Congress that our U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern decided to skip. He's not on that committee. He didn't really skip it, but... He's promised to get to the bottom of finding aliens for me in Congress. But that is what Congress has been up to. Right. Um, oftentimes, they talk about missing time as one of the hallmarks of alien abductions, for example. Right. And I listen to those uh, hearings, and I think that time is missing. I'm never going to get it back. Uh, in all seriousness, we have talked about the claims of aliens and that there have been congressional hearings, there have been Pentagon investigations, there is a UAP task force, the UFOs are now unidentified aerial phenomena, and I think it has even moved up to unidentified anomalous phenomena, but it's still UAPs. I thought because these hearings took place about less than two weeks ago, and uh, it was in the uh, House Oversight Subcommittee, and these were bipartisan, I just want to hit on three things. Of course, I'm going to forget the count. So, okay. Monty, you'll have to remind me about that. <laughs> so I'll try to remember what number we're on. Okay. But, but, but three things based upon what the claims that are being made. Uh, but then the other aspect is why I am skeptical about these claims. And the third part is what would it take to say, yeah, those are claims of alien presence uh, anywhere in the universe, because so far we have none. We still don't have evidence of a microbe from another planet. Uh, that is life. That is life. Yeah. And it was fun. I, should, I wish I could have rolled tape when we were talking with James Lowenthal last week, the both of you talking about this hearing and poo-pooing it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I teach a class called Aliens, Close Encounters of a Multidisciplinary Kind at Hampshire. And I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I think it would be the most amazing thing if it is true. And I would love for it to be true because it's going to be mind-boggling. So let's talk about just a little bit about why this hearing has taken a little bit more importance. I have mentioned many times that New York Times story in 2017, that was a front page story about pilots seeing things and so on and so forth. And it started 
started the ball rolling in terms of UFO hearings, then the Congress asked for what's going on? We don't know what's going on. And hence there were hearings. And since there were hearings, then New York Times covered it and then they covered it. And so there were more hearings. So there is a sort of like feedback loop, which I want people to be aware of, of how things develop. There is a task force that is with multiple people, including from Pentagon, including scientists, including some of the UFO folks or UAP folks, they have come out about, I think in April, their findings were that none of the things that have been claimed to have been potential visitors from outer space, there was not sufficient evidence for that. So that came out in April. But after that, David Grush, he is a former intelligence officer. He left uh, the government in April of this year. He's the whistleblower. He's the whistleblower. And interestingly, he has joined another foundation, which actually is a nonprofit about UAPs and things like that. So obviously, there is always uh, another element where you can go and there is funding available. That's a separate side of the story. But he has high clearance in terms of classified materials. So this whistleblower, he testified under oath. Some of his claims include, and this was the explosive part of the testimony, that the U.S. government has recovered, and he called it non-human biologics, but basically around crashed vehicles. So clearly implying that there are spacecrafts from another planet that are here, that have crashed here, and there were remains of aliens that were flying in. That's a pretty serious thing. Now, when asked, he himself has not seen those things. And that's always, this is the thing that, you know, but he says that he has missed several people who have firsthand knowledge of that. Now, he doesn't have it, but he says that a lot of people that he trusts. So that is plausible. And then he also said that these things have been going on for over 80 years. And it's not just that, but in fact, other governments have been involved in it as well. So those are the claims. Why am I still a bit skeptical? I mean, in some sense, there are a lot of astronomers, astrobiologists who are spending a lot of time in figuring out even sort of like, you know, hey, are there microbes on Mars or not? Or Can we find one dead microbe of something that used to be alive on some other rock anywhere else in the solar system? One dead microbe. And here we are talking about having a spacecraft and then non-human biologics and so on and so forth. To me, that those are two very incongruous things. And people who do work on it, who have spent their lives on it, they are extremely skeptical about it. If you think about the level of claims, when they talk about people who believe in UAPs, including David Grush, the way he talks about it, it is about technology. We, can re rever we have reverse engineer technology, we have improved technology. It's always about technology. But if you think about what would be the impact of even a microbe, for example, but certainly about intelligent life, it's actually going to transform not just technology, but we are talking about philosophy. We are talking about physics. We are talking about astronomy. We are talking about all the fields because the context that not just life evolved on this planet, it evolved somewhere else, not just it evolved somewhere else, but it became complex, complex enough to have species that actually could create tools, not just tools, but to create tools to make spacecrafts to fly across interstellar mean Well, those are a lot of the questions about our own intelligence, about ourselves, about our biology. Can those kind of conditions lead to somewhere else, so on and so forth? So it would actually fundamentally transform most of our academic fields. And here, if you look at it, it's the mundaneness. It's not the most amazing, oh my goodness, they found technology. To me, 
the fact that when they talk about what they have found, it's so ordinary. It comes from science fiction films. That's my big objections to science fiction films about these type of things because they oftentimes just talk about technology. Mm -hmm. No, technology is the least important thing, least interesting thing because you would have questions about, is the molecule of life the same as DNA? Or is some other molecule working in? I mean, that's a fascinating question that we would ask even if we find a microbe on Mars or any place. But if you look at the testimony, if you look at the claims, all of that curiosity, right? I mean, you would think, oh my goodness, I have a billion questions. And it's always about reverse engineering technology. What would it take for you, Salman Hamid, who I know actually believes there must be life elsewhere in the universe? Because I think this is point number three that you're trying to make. Right. What kind of evidence would make you believe that? That being said, government lies to us a lot about different things over the course of its history. Could be that they are just really good at keeping this one particular secret. Okay, so first of all, government is not very good at keeping secrets. I mean, we know that from Edward Snowden to WikiLeaks and so on and so forth. If I can just hitch back before I go to number three, and I'm glad, Monty, you're keeping me on track right. for the numbers. To me, the way people talk about these things is a lot like when people claim about that moon landing was a hoax. Because they would bring up one thing and you say, oh yeah, there are no stars. Well, yeah, it's the exposure time. Then they come to the second thing and the third thing and the fourth thing. In the same way, these conversations are about single points. Oh, they were non-biologicals. Okay. But David Grush has also claimed that there's a Cold War going on between different nations to find these UAPs for the last 80, 90 years. In fact, he has also claimed that Vatican is hiding evidence too. Oh, now it's the Da Vinci Code. Exactly. So that's where I'm going at. Like, no, so, okay. So that didn't come up in the hearings, but he has actually said that in another interview that in 1933, Mussolini in Italy, they actually found a UAP and that was on their base, but the Vatican helped the US get it, snap it from there and bring it back. So that's a whole other story. And there are a lot of stories like that about intergovernmental intrigue. And so you were talking about secrets. So it's not just about the US. Now we are talking about international intrigue and they've all kept these UAPs secret and so on and so forth. So the way to deal with that, like the moon landing stuff is, let's imagine, yes, they have been recovered. What would it take to keep the world from not transforming, by the way, because our philosophy, biology, physics, chemistry, astronomy is roughly the same what you would imagine without aliens, right? To me, that would be even harder to believe that we have all of this phenomenal, revolutionary, the biggest kind of discoveries out there. We know it, not just we, a lot of people know it. A lot of people in different countries know it. And yet we have managed to keep, stay the world, keep the world the same as if there were no aliens. To me, that is even more mind-blowing than actually having aliens because <laughs> we have managed to not change our world and act as if everything is exactly the same. Of course, I think there are intelligent beings out there and this is another slippery slope that comes in. This was evident in the congressional hearings. You go from saying whether that is true or not to, of course, but you know, there is life out there. This universe is so big. Yes, universe is big. And yes, there are intelligent life, but that is a very different question than if they are here or not. And I am not one of those people who think that it's impossible for them to come here because the distances between stars is too much. We don't know. There may be ways to do that. By the way, David Grush also mentioned interdimensional 
aliens in the congressional testimony. So that's a whole other thing that <laughs> interdimensional, what do you mean? Okay, so I'm not even bringing it up. I'm just saying that all these other things which individually you were, if you look at those claims and you investigate it, you go like, what? But people forget and take bits and pieces of it. My worry about all of these hearings and other things is it is right, it has turned into a partisan thing where people are talking about government disclosures, government overreach. My concern about these UAP things is it's going to become a republic Democrat things where Republicans are saying, look, where is the fungi going? And already Tucker Carlson is a big fan of UAPs. So this is another way of how you can take an issue and put it into a political context. So there are unknown things in astronomy that happens and there is a process in which here is the evidence and then other people get a chance to actually look at it, test it. If there is evidence for that and in the 2017 New York Times article, they had claimed that they have things that they have recovered from it. But two years later, New York Times retracted that claim that they had recovered other things. And I think that retraction was important, but it was just a tiny little one sentence. Oh, by the way, those turned out to be of human origins. So it may still be true. My mind would be blown even more if for 80 years they have, we have had it here and we have kept it secret and it's all about technology. It's to me, it's far more unbelievable than tomorrow aliens showing up in a flying saucer above Amherst. And if they do, you might want to go to Amherst's town council meeting tonight to talk about whether the skies are dark enough to see them or whether streetlights need to be positioned better to try to help people on bikes and pedestrians. And don't forget, in Cummington this weekend, there's a dark skies event at Aruna Hill, and you can see the Milky Way, you can see the Perseid meteor shower, and more. So see the things that you know you can actually see in the sky. <laughs> the shade. Up next, the science of feeling our best emotionally for National Happiness Day with Amherst professor Katherine Sanderson. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. <laughs> Uh, welcome back to the Fabulous 413. Tomorrow is allegedly National Happiness Day, and we're joined by Catherine A. Sanderson, Professor of Happiness. She is the Manuel Family Professor in Life Sciences at Amherst College and the author of The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health, and Longevity. She has written five college textbooks. That is a lot. That is a lot of textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Sanderson lectures around the country and was chosen by Princeton Review as one of the best college professors in America. Her work has been featured in The Atlantic and The Washington Post and on CBS Sunday Morning and The Today Show on NBC and, and, and welcome to our show. Thank you so much for this invitation to talk about a really important topic. After that list of accolades, I feel like you're accidentally slumming it with us. Not to yeah. slam <laughs> us, but like, wow. Oh, okay. Sorry, we feel sorry for you. <laughs> thank you for thank you for coming yeah. on. <laughs> Happiness. What is it? <laughs> I think that's what everybody they think they know what it is. I mean, is it the same as being happy? Is it the same as joy? What is it? Yeah, so great to start with the really most fundamental important question and actually there's a big debate in the literature about how to answer that precise question. Some people think that happiness is really about joy, sort of moment-to-moment -moment positive emotion. I think about a kid swinging on a swing set with their arms out, you know, looking at the sky, feeling totally blissful. 
Other people think that happiness is really about meaning, about feeling a sense of life satisfaction, about contentment. And that, of course, is accompanied by very different sorts of emotions that are less sort of high in affect, but still feel really good. Does that change, like your perspective on where, where, in, where that needle lands for you change how you pursue it? Absolutely. And it also has an impact whether you're thinking short-term versus long-term. So the example I often give is it can feel great to have a wonderful glass of wine or a great piece of cheesecake or listen to a beautiful piece of music. That feels great, very pleasurable in the moment. But tomorrow, you're not getting that satisfaction from that glass of wine you had last night, right? So if you think about sort of short-term versus long-term, what we know is that long-term satisfaction is really built on things like finding meaning, doing things that you find important, finding purpose in your life. One of the best examples is planning a vacation. The experience of going on that vacation may have some highs and lows, right? They lose your luggage. You get lost. You don't really do the translation of euros, right? And overpay for dinner or something. Your bank cuts your your card off in another country even though you told them you were leaving. Precisely. <laughs> that sounds a little bit close it to might, home. Maybe happened twice. Oh, no. Yeah. But so the, that moment was probably not really pleasurable for no. you, right, in that right. moment. But when we think about planning a trip, we never think about those things, right? We think about what am I going to see? What am I going to do? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to go? And all of those feelings, in fact, are anticipating experiencing something wonderful. And that experience of even the planning can be very pleasurable. So, but is that happiness or is that being happy for a brief period of time? And are they the same thing? Are they mutually exclusive? Can you be sad, but still be experiencing happiness? Well, so one of the key findings is that it's very normal to have a range of emotions. So in fact, we can appreciate moments of happiness in part because we've had moments in which we aren't, right? In which we are sad. I think thinking about the pandemic is actually really interesting because all of a sudden things that we used to take for granted became really, really pleasurable, right? Going to Starbucks and not having to wear a mask, (laughs) getting on an airplane and not having to wear a mask. I remember when the pandemic hit, my students were all, of course, sent away and all of a sudden had to have Zoom classes. They hadn't really seemed to appreciate my in-person classes when they left. You know, I was was teaching a class at 8.30 in the morning, which for a college student is like crazy early. And I remember students like sluffling to class, you know, uh, sweatshirts, sweatpants, hats, not looking particularly happy to see me. Once the pandemic hit and we were teaching by Zoom, all of a sudden students said, I really miss you. I miss sitting in that class. And when they came back in the fall, even though we were in a tent wearing a mask, they were very happy to be together. So part of it is we can feel happy in comparison to what it used to be. So experiencing some sadness actually can help us appreciate the small pleasures of daily life. Absolutely. Well, in similar, uh, kind of in a similar vein, thinking about like people going out to see shows, going out to experience like live performancey things that people haven't necessarily gone back to. They're pleasurable things that we enjoyed before the pandemic that people haven't quite gone back towards. Why would people avoid previous happiness if they have access to it again? Right. So I think a couple of things, and I'm laughing in part because I had not been to a movie theater for the last three years. And the last two Mondays, I've gone to a movie with my husband. What did you see? Well, we saw Mission Impossible, whatever that one was. And then we saw Indiana Jones. Oh, my. Um, and we're going to Barbie. Okay, um, good. There we go. So I'm like, right, we're, we're almost lost. Working our, we're working our way up. We're working our way up. So, uh, but but it was really odd, 
right? It was really odd because we've been just streaming things. And all of a sudden, it was like sort of getting back into it. So to answer your question, it's because we develop different habits, right, that the pandemic sort of forced us to say, well, now I'm doing something else. I actually had a conversation with someone who works here who will remain nameless, but I'll do a little shout out. Hi, Katie. Um, <laughs> and, and we know each other because I used to actually teach an aerobics class that she was in. And we were a great group of mostly women, not all women, but it was this wonderful group that that exercised together for literally decades. And then the pandemic happened and we all sort of went our own ways. And now many of us, you know, some people bought a Peloton. I've started running, which I hate, but I, but I do. <laughs> yeah. And so again, part of it is that the pandemic forced us into new habits. And sometimes those habits feel pretty, pretty pleasurable. I mean, I said to my husband when we went to the movie, uh, it's going to be really hard for you not to go to the bathroom, like during the movie, because he's used to just like stopping it right. whenever he needs to get, you know, a drink or pee or whatever. My big takeaway so far is happiness professor hates running. Well, that would be true. That's She's Catherine, not alone. Catherine, me too. <laughs> Catherine A. Sanderson, who uh, teaches at Amherst College and teaches classes and writes books and textbooks about happiness. It, the psychology behind it, al- almost every major world religion has some sort of concept of happiness, joy, being happy. A lot of those world religions seem to settle somewhere around the idea that if you are not happy now... You will never be happy. I don't know if that's true. Where do you fall on that spectrum? <laughs> well, well, thank you for a little bit of a rebuttal there. Because because I think the key takeaway from the empirical religion work, and again, I'm a psychologist, not a religion person, but, but the empirical research in psychology would absolutely say that some people have a head start on finding happiness, but there are all things that each of us can do. And so... What I want your listeners to take away is that even if you are not somebody who easily and naturally finds happiness, which I do not, there are specific strategies that you can use in your life, no matter where you fall on that natural happiness continuum, that will, in fact, boost your overall well-being. Can money buy happiness? And if so, what's the, pr- what's the price? So sadly, the answer to that has changed over about the last six months. There was a pretty... <laughs> Thanks, Joe Biden. Yeah. Well, Whoa. that is not, Whoa. though. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. Whoa. <laughs> it's a joke, everybody. <laughs> and I'm not sure I should be condoning, Monty. That's right. What, what radio show am I on? Uh, I, so... I thought it was the fabulous 413, <laughs> but I am also confused now. <laughs> so, in fact, having some money does make it easier to be happy, mostly because more money can reduce stress. Your car breaks down and it's a calamity if you can't afford to rent a car or buy a new car. If you have enough money, it appears that, in fact, the stress of that car accident, you know, car mishap is eased. So having money does seem to make it easier to find happiness, but it's not the only thing. Is that also part of the reason why National Happiness Day is during the summer instead of at another time of the year? Because, like, there's even with, like, finding activities for your kids, if you have kids and, like, generally summer is kind of an easier time to exist outside of, you know, the sweltering humidity. Like, is that why it's in August? So that's a really fascinating question because one of the key findings from happiness is actually that spending time outside increases happiness. And for many people, that's easier to do in the summer, especially if you live in Massachusetts, right, in terms of the ability to see nature, to go for a swim, you know, to look at water, whatever it is. And so certainly evidence suggests that spending time in nature boosts happiness. And so very well, that is probably why it's scheduled in the summer. I need a happiness day in February. (laughs) We should make it a 
twice a year event. <laughs> We're speaking with Professor uh, Catherine A. Sanderson from Amherst College about happiness, writes about happiness. Tomorrow is National Happiness Day. In the brief time we have left, what about love and happiness? How much does love, either a romantic love mm-hmm. or some sort of familial love, filial love, how much does that factor into happiness? So glad that you asked that. Relationships are the single best predictor of our happiness. But what's really important is that it doesn't have to be a particular label. So it's not that people who are married are happier or people who have children are happier. What we know is that having high quality relationships in which you can have intimate and meaningful, authentic conversations is what predicts happiness. But that can be with a romantic partner. It can be with a friend. It can be with a family member. It can be with a neighbor, a colleague, whatever. But what you need is some version of love. Yes. Building a sort of community, if you will, like the community brings you happiness, the community you make for yourself. And it doesn't happen to be married necessarily. It has to just be connections. Exactly. It has to be connections. And in fact, there's really interesting research suggesting that even so-called weak ties matter. So this could be saying hello to the barista every day when you're getting your coffee or saying uh, hello to your neighbor as you're walking your dog. So little ties, small weak ties also boost happiness. What was it that turned you on to the world of happiness and to become sort of like a, a national expert out of Amherst in the world of happiness? Well, my work initially focused on health psychology. That was what I studied in in graduate school. And what we now know is that the link between the mind and body is absolutely clear. So one of the best ways to have better health is, in fact, to have better happiness, that those things are really connected. And what empirical research now in positive psychology tells us is that we can all do things to be happier. And so that's why I love talking about it, writing about it, teaching about it. Writing five textbooks about it. I know. <laughs> Cap- I know there was so much to learn about happiness. I know. <laughs> and I'm other glad. things. And we have so much to learn still. Catherine A. Sanderson, professor of happiness, for lack of a better description, from Amherst College. Thank you so much in anticipation of what's probably a busy holiday for you. National Happiness Day tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk. As I often say, more happiness in the world is good for us all. Truer words, you know, truer words. And I'm very happy that tomorrow we're going to Tanglewood. Tanglewood is on parade. And we're taking the show on the road. The fabulous 413 live from Tanglewood with our Tanglewood correspondent, Boston Pops conductor, Keith Lockhart. We'll hear about and from the musicians roaming the lawns at Tanglewood Tuesday and hear what they've been up to in these summer weeks. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get a chance to chat with John Williams. If you have as many questions for the maestros as we do, send them our way, thefab413 at nepm.org. Or text 1-800-639-9120. Our director is Tony Plaguechild Dunn. Our engineer is Betsy knows a little bit about this happiness thing, Lankto. Our technical team is Bart embodying Freedom Rankin, Kara rescuing our show from the pits of despair, Foster, and punk rude boy Dubay. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. See you tomorrow on the fabulous 413 and the Berkshires. 